how many of you have ever been under a hard deadline? Three of you, good. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, a hard deadline. Uh, you, are, you are, the rest of you are all blessed then. Yeah, the idea of, of pressure, some of you really like that. Like you do well if you've got a deadline. Tell me when this is due and I will get it done one way or another. Right? And some of you, you know, you don't like deadlines at all. You just like to get it done. It's done when I say it's done. Right? I actually tend to like deadlines. They're, they're helpful to me. Uh, I, I, I think that there's something that I call the effective motivation of last-minute panic. Right? There's something about when you, know, you haven't done it. You've known about it for three weeks, and now it's due in three days, and you're like, I should probably start working on this. Right? There's something about that. And yet... There's pressure that comes with that as the clock is ticking down, as your, as your minutes are wearing away, you're getting closer and closer, and it builds pressure. There is one man I know who has always thrived in situations like that. When the clock is ticking, when things are getting dangerous, it's a man by the name of Jack Bauer. Amen. I see, yes, clap offering, I hear that. Um, so I, I grew up, uh, and I loved a show growing up called 24. Got him, Keith or Sutherland, right? And, uh, and when there was international terrorism, right, that threatened America, you don't send the military, you don't send the Marines, you send one man, <laughs> Jack Bauer, and he gets results, right? And actually, I remember there was a season where I had to stop watching the show because it gives me anxiety. It literally took place over 24 literal hours. The clock ticked. An entire season was 24 episodes, one-hour episodes, you know, and uh, it went from there. But yeah, it was always kind of fun. I, I liked it. Actually, my son is named after Jack Bauer. <laughs> I promise you, my wife is my witness, I would have named him Jack Bauer Cosma had she let me, but wisdom prevailed. <laughs> but there's a, he, there was this kind of constant thing, like as the show went on, he would get more ragged. He'd say, we're running out of time! And he would say that. And like, that's like part of like our life now with me and my wife. Like we'll be getting the kids ready, we're going to church, and I'll be like, we're out of time like it's just a thing because sometimes when when time is getting short and pressure mounts how do you respond do you respond with with faith do you feel do you, do you start getting really anxious when when time is short it brings pressure and the, i will say sometimes you can take matters into your own hands right and like that tv show right sometimes that can be a good thing you can rise to action but other times taking matters into your hands, in your own hands, and trying to take shortcuts from God's will can lead to devastating results, as we'll learn here today. And so let me read to you from 1 Samuel. Join with me as we read 1 Samuel 13. I'm going to read the whole chapter, then we'll pray and talk through it. The Word of God says, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for they were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and holes, and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? 
And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered in Michmash, I said, well, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. And the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed at Geba and Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned towards Orpra to the land of Shual. Another company turned towards Beth Horon. Another company toward the border that looked down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for the sharpening of the axes for setting the goads. So on the day of battle... There was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan had his son, but Saul and Jonathan had his son had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Would you pray with me? Lord God, as we look at your word today, as we see uh, a difficult situation, as we see Saul's response and Samuel's response, would you would you teach us, would you help us as we read your word to learn your will? God, where we are under pressure, where we need um, your help, Lord, teach us today what we should do. Encourage us, God. Convict us. Be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we start in verse 1 and we begin seeing the, uh, the story of how Jonathan attacked the Philistines. First one is a little interesting. It's, it's kind of difficult to understand exactly what's being talked about there. The numbers can be a challenge. You know, there's kind of, so if you have a different translation, you, it might translate it differently. It's saying one of two things. Either uh, these numbers represent the transmission of time between you know, when Saul was anointed to when he was you know, coronated or during this time. It's been about a year. He's been a, a king for a year, and then this happened a year later. Or some translations might render this that it's describing the length of time between when Saul came to the throne, about 38 years old, and uh, the length of his reign, which is about 40 to 42 years. Just, just not going to spend all the time on that. Just know uh, that there's a very difficult uh, issue with the, with the Hebrew here, and different translations handle it differently. But either way, it's talking about the, the point in Saul's reign. So as we really enter in the story in verse 2, uh, after the coronation of Saul as king, uh, he begins to form the nucleus of a standing army. Up to this point, Israel didn't really have standing armies in the same way. It's like, you're a man, you're between these ages, we're going to go fight. <laughs> you know, that's what they did to begin clearing the land. And it was, you know, when they, when they were in the time of the judges and the judge would rise up and just kind of gather people together, they'd go fight and they'd go home. And so he, now as a king, is going to develop a standing army. It's a slow process. Um, these would be his fighting men, right? These were, these were you know, largely, though, we've got to understand, because this is the beginning of an army, these are largely under-trained or untrained men. They are ill-equipped for military campaigns. So he chooses these 3,000, 2,000 he keeps with himself, 1,000 he gives to his son Jonathan, who is also one of his chief military commanders. So Jonathan takes... Uh, that 1,000, and he attacks this garrison of the Philistines at Gebo, right? And he defeats it. He just goes out and strikes. It's kind of unclear from, from the text of Scripture whether or not Saul ordered this or whether Jonathan was acting independently, right? 
Uh, but regardless, I think we should see this as a courageous act. This wasn't impulsiveness. Um, this is courage. Right? After the leadership of Joshua, you remember we've gone through several books of the Old Testament in the, over the past few years. When Joshua led the people into the promised land, they were, they were beginning to drive out the Canaanites, but they didn't complete it right? They were like they were supposed to. Judges chapter 1 verse 28 tells us that Israel wasn't entirely faithful in this, that they didn't completely drive out the Canaanites, and because of that, like, they, like God commanded them, so these people stayed around, they got strongholds, and in some cases, like with the Philistines, they began to overpower Israel. So during the years of the judges, Israel often suffered under enemy occupation. And this is the promised land. They'd already entered into it. It really belonged to them. This wasn't really supposed to happen. It did because of their unfaithfulness. So when Saul's reign comes, when, when, he, when he becomes king, it's almost like a reconquest of the land. Okay, we have a king now, a standing army, and God even says at his coronation, like he is going to um, defeat the Philistines, right? He's, he, God's going to use him for that. Of course, this reconquest of the land is going to be more successful under David. So this tack is, I think, a good thing. It's, it, but, you know, and it should be cause of celebration, you know, that word spreads throughout the land that Saul, because he's the king, has defeated the Philistine garrison. Yay, that's awesome. Good news. Bad news. Now they're angry, right? It's like stepping on a bee, and you're like, yeah, I killed a bee, and then you realize, like, there's the hive, right? And they're all kind of coming at you now, Right? So verses 5 through 7, you know, now this is the consequence. The Philistines, they are angry, and they begin mustering their army. They're assembling a fighting force, and you've got to understand, this is much more significant than anything the Israelites have. This text here says 30,000 chariots. Okay, once again, there's a, a textual issue that may, it may be closer to 3,000. It may be a number issue. But regardless, either way, that's the entire army that Israel has right now. They have just in chariots. Not to mention they have um, 6,000 horsemen and a massive ground troop that they don't even bother giving a number to. They're just like, it's like the sand of the sea. It's uncountable. This incredible force. Meanwhile, Saul has 2,000 ill-equipped soldiers and Jonathan has whatever remains of his 1,000-man strike force. The people are understandably afraid. Israelites, it says, begin to hide themselves in caves, in holes in the ground, in tombs, right? And some of the people actually cross back over the Jordan River into Israelite territory. Um, but these people are facing an incredibly strong foe, much stronger than, than them. But they're also lacking for courage and faith. They're looking at this incredible foe, and they're saying, like, we don't have a chance. Saul doesn't have a chance. The armies of the living God don't have a chance, and they're afraid. They're hiding and running. Verse 6, verse six says that they are hard-pressed, or they're distressed. Naturally, right? They're facing something so great and over overwhelming, and they have no chance against it. And, I, and I, as we continue forward, I, I want you to see yourself a little bit of this. Have you ever been in a situation like that where you're facing something that is so overwhelming, so, so strong, an enemy that seems insurmountable that you're just like, I don't even know what to do. And you have that, that, that natural desire to flee, to hide. Saul waits at Gilgal with his force of 2,000 and even those, and he says not that, and it's not like those, those soldiers are like, yeah, let's, let's do it, you know. They're trembling. They're afraid. It doesn't look good. We're going to do something different. We're actually going to skip ahead uh, and continue this uh, in verse 15 through 23 because I think these, this kind of uh, bridges it together. This idea that they're going to continue preparing for battle. So we're going to come back to verses 8 through 15 and spend most of our time there. But hop ahead to verse 15 uh, through 23. Uh, after the events we'll talk about in a moment of Saul's interaction with Samuel, uh, Saul, uh, Samuel, Saul does have uh, a, sen he does a census and it finds out that even more soldiers have deserted his army than actually remain. He, now he's down. He had 2,000 plus whatever Jonathan brought, and now he has 600. So it's not looking good. He's gathered at Geba. The, arm, the ar enemy armies are just four miles away. In Michmash, 
with armies in the thousands. And not only that, but the Philistines... Uh, have sent out raiding parties. So these are like, hey, you know, we've got so many soldiers. We're going to send out people to the north so that so the Israelites are to the south. They send out raiding parties to the north, three of them, and their whole job is just to, to pillage and to steal and destroy and to kill Israelites to the north. I mean, imagine how disp- you can do nothing about it. Imagine how disputing that is. We, and, and honestly, we, nothing is re- recorded of what became of them. We don't know actually how successful they were or what Israel did with them. Looking at verses 19 through 23, we're reminded that, that not only they're a smaller force, but they are ill-equipped. The Philistines had military superiority. They were particularly sophisticated in the use of iron. Actually, archaeologists surmise that uh, it was probably the Philistines who brought a lot of iron technology uh, to the land of Canaan, including tools and jewelry and weaponry and agricultural technology. They, they probably brought that into Canaan. So one thing they did in order to keep Israel at bay is they forbid them from having blacksmiths. They probably um, exiled them and said, if you want your tools sharpened, your agricultural tools sharpened, any of that, you've got to come to a Philistine blacksmith and we're going to charge you for it. And so when this was the case, the people had to pay you know, exorbitant fees to have all this done. And meanwhile, th- that just leaves any Hebrew soldiers with like, farming implements for weaponry, or weapons they can make out of stone or wood. This is not going well. The enemy has chariots, which, by the way, like, in ancient times is like tanks. Like, it's just, it is just something that is, like, what do you do with that? Only Saul and Jonathan have swords. The Philistines are assembled for battle. It's not going well. They're undermanned. They're ill-equipped. They're lacking faith. The people are afraid. The, t- the clock is ticking. What's going to happen? Stay tuned next week when Pastor Tim tells you what happens at the Battle of Michmash. I set you up there, Tim. I can't do any better. So. You're gonna, you're gonna, we're going to leave that narrative till next week. And yet, I'm just going to say this, though. Whenever the, God, the people of God face, whatever they face, no matter how great their foe, let's be honest, you've read this story before. You've heard something just like this happening before in Scripture. I think God loves to stack the odds against himself. I think God sometimes just lets things get, seem like they're getting way out of hand, and he's actually okay with us feeling like, okay, God, this is a bit much. This is more than I can handle. He's like, I know, but we're going to make it even harder. But he doesn't do it because he hates you. He doesn't do it because he's, he's off doing something else. It's because he's like, because when I, when I bring salvation, when I, when I enter to save the day, then you're going to see the glory of the living God. And so, spoiler alert, God does show up, but we'll leave it at that. Let's transition back, if you would, back to the main section we'll talk about today, though, verses 8 through 15. There's rising tensions because with all of this in mind, with Israel standing just four miles away from an incalculable number of, of soldiers, and there is a certain number of soldiers that Saul has, and they're all scared and ill-equipped, and they're staring at this, Meanwhile, there's another thing going on, is that Saul had a meeting at some point with Samuel where Samuel had arranged that he would wait there up to seven days for Samuel to arrive. The purpose of this was for offering sacrifices, right? They were going to offer a sacrifice before God to seek his blessing and his direction. This is actually mentioned potentially in, in 1 Samuel 10, 8, where Samuel says, after, after he anoints Saul to be king, he says, Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to show you what you shall do. It's, it's probable that this is the passage that uh, Saul had in mind, um, but, it's all, but this could have actually been referring to a different situation because this was a good amount of time before this battle happened. Um, but regardless, we know that this was an arrangement that Saul and Samuel had. They're, they're mustered at a place called Gilgal. This is significant. Uh, way back in, in the time when Joshua was leading Israel, when the, when the people of God crossed over the Jordan River for the first time, and they came into the promised land, and they're getting ready to, con- to do conquest, there was a big issue. That throughout the time of the wandering in the wilderness, the people of God had been unfaithful. They had not actually circumcised their sons. And this younger generation were uncircumcised. They said, hey, before we do this, we have to actually, this is a problem. This is a great sin of our nation. We have to fix this. And so they all, all the men are circumcised. 
uh, at Gilgal, and that's, and, and that's why they name it that place. It means to roll away. It's rolling away the shame or, or the iniquity of Israel. And so it's a really important place. That's where the conquest began for, the, for, uh, for Canaan, and that's kind of like where it's beginning again. So there's, there seems to be some significance there. This is also the place where the people renewed the kingdom and made Saul king at his coronation in chapter 11. So the call is to wait seven days. So Saul waits. He's gathered there with his army. He waits one day, and then two days, and then four, and then six. And on the seventh day, Samuel has yet to show up. And along the way, every single day, more and more of his frightened soldiers begin deserting, just leaving, just like, nope, I'm going home. Nope, I'm going to go hide. And the sad thing is, the scary thing is, is you know, you get to, in a military situation, right, like once people start deserting, right, then it, it creates more fear. Then, then it gets even worse because now you already had, you didn't have enough soldiers, now you have even fewer so you can, you can feel the tension here. Imagine being in Saul's place. He's sitting there and waiting, literally. He's not supposed to do anything. What's your job? Just wait. I'll be coming. Okay. <laughs> and he waits day in and day out, and things only seem to get worse as he's waiting. His anxiety grows, probably frustration, like, Samuel, where are you? Come on. The feeling of being helpless. It does, it does ask the question, though, why the delay? Why didn't Samuel arrive on the third day or the, the fourth day? It might have been that he was far away. It might have been, we're actually not told. We're not, we're not told at all. I think we do have to believe, though, that in God's timing, Samuel's delay must have been intentional. We're not told that specifically, but we, we do believe God is sovereign over what's happening here. And actually, this is actually kind of reminiscent of the delay of our Lord Jesus. Do you remember when, when Jesus got word uh, that his friend Lazarus was sick? And Mary and Martha, they're like, hey, would you come? You know, if you'd come, you could be healed. Would you come to him? And Jesus specifically waits a number of days, ensuring that Lazarus does actually die. And that could seem very callous, like Jesus. Yeah. And even, Martha and Mary even ask, like, if you would have come here, surely you could have healed him. We've seen you heal people. Why didn't you come? He purposely delayed so that Lazarus would die, and it is clear that if he'd gone earlier, he could have prevented his death. And yet it was, it was not his will to heal Lazarus. It was actually his will to resurrect him from the dead. An act, and that very act of him resurrecting Lazarus from the dead was what sealed his death certificate. It's what set, it's what, it was the final straw that convinced the Pharisees, this man has to die. In fact, if Lazarus hadn't died, if he hadn't let Lazarus die, we would not be saved. It was the catalyst that sent him to the cross. It's, but it is hard to wait, isn't it? Sometimes, from our perspective, it seems like God delays in showing up when we need Him most. Like Saul, we can sense things are getting hard and getting, we're becoming hard-pressed and things seem to be falling apart and they're not getting better. They're not getting more hopeful, more joyful, like, oh, I can see the, the light of the end of the tunnel. It just seems to be getting worse. And we wait for God to come to our aid and, and to intervene immediately. And praise God, sometimes He does. Sometimes you pray and like it feels like God answers like immediately. He brings relief, he brings redemption, he brings salvation, he, he brings healing, but other times it seems like he doesn't. Some of you experienced that. I'm sure all of us have in some way, and it's hard. How do we think about that? Well, first of all, I think we need to, we need to set it firmly in our minds that God is not wronging us. Let me remind you that God is not lazy, that God is not absent-minded, he has not forgotten about you, he's not blind, he's not too busy, he's not callous, he's not wicked, he's not unconcerned. He does not delight in the suffering of his children. I think some of you probably need to hear that today, like God, if, even though he allows you to continue in suffering longer than you would like, he does not delight in that. Let me remind you that when Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus, you all, kids you all, who are here, you all know the shortest Bible verse. Jesus wept. 
he, he wept. He does not delight in the suffering, the sadness of his children, but rather he has a purpose. Oftentimes there's several things that God wishes to accomplish and he waits for everything to line up so that it's perfect. So we don't think that God hates us or he's abandoned us. Rather, we believe that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Even this, whatever that this is for you, yes, even this. So why does God, I mean, so we ask this question, like God, why do you act how you think best? Why are you acting according to your timing and not my timing? It's kind of a stupid question when you say it out loud, right? God, why are you acting according to your timing and not mine? I think actually believers are going to spend eternity marveling at the unfolding of history. That God has always been a master of timely salvation, arriving at just the right time. Guys, God's goal for you is not to keep you from discomfort, but to keep you in Christ. He is willing to shake you in order to stabilize you. That's how you test if something of a structure is sound. If it's going to stand, you have to shake it to settle it. His purpose is not to give you an easy life, but to give you eternal life and to prepare you for it. Guys, no one in glory second guesses God's wisdom. Nobody in heaven right now is saying, is doubting God's plan or his timing or his power. But right now, that's something we wrestle with, right? We have to struggle with this. And it's sometimes there are lessons that we have to learn in the school of suffering. I wrote a quote uh, this week um, from Thomas, I think it was Thomas Watson, but maybe I got the, I got the wrong guy. But he said, you know, sermons are good for us. It's, it's, it's good for us to, to hear the word of God, but sometimes a, a, a time in a sickbed does more for us than a sermon. There are seasons when being sick, when being poor, when being hard-pressed, when being pressured does more to draw us to God than just hearing that God is faithful. We actually have to learn that God is faithful in the school of suffering. But when is God going to show up? And some, some of you are thinking, like, that's great, that's great, you know, but it's been a while, I'm waiting. And if I could tell you, like, oh, wait, you know, this is when God's going to answer, I don't know. I do believe he will, though. Like, there's, there's not going to be anything when it's all said and done that God, any, any loose end that's just like, oh, yeah, I missed that one. Yeah, that problem, yeah, that never got solved. Yeah, sorry, I dropped the ball on that one. Like, every suffering, every hardship, every enemy, every sin, everything will be dealt with. How, how long should you wait? Until the Lord answers. And I got to say, for some of those things, there are things that God will not heal us of, that God will not redeem until we see him face to face. So if nothing else, we should wait until the trumpet sounds. We should wait in faith. Saul, though, doesn't do that. Look in verse 9. Saul decides that he has waited long enough. He orders that the burnt offering and the peace offering be brought to him, and he'll do it himself. He will not wait for Samuel anymore. He's waited. He's not going to go any longer. And you might ask, like, was that really a bad thing? I mean, we might say that, you know, from a purely human perspective, it's like, hey, he took initiative, right? He took action, right? He, he, he stood in the gap. He, he, uh, he, he had a, a decisive moment. Isn't that what we expect of good leaders? So what's the problem here? Saul disobeyed God by disobeying Samuel's direction to wait. Remember, Samuel is the prophet of God. He's given him specific directions, speaking the very words of God. The command wasn't, okay, Saul, wait until you can't wait anymore. Wait until the circumstances get so bad that you just can't wait anymore. It was wait until I arrive. But the main thing also beyond that is he didn't wait long enough. The second thing is that he, is that he went outside of his authority in offering those sacrifices. Saul offered this sacrifice though he was neither a priest nor a prophet. We know from Numbers 18.7 that the Levites were to guard that aspect of sacrifice. They were the ones God had entrusted, not the king. The king is, so maybe Saul is, is thinking like, hey, he's the first king. You know, I'm going to take some of this authority. Who tells me I, I, can't, I don't have the right to do this? He's going outside of his arena of authority, doing what he ought not to do. 
But beyond that, he's doing it in front of Israel. He's doing it as a king, so it's even worse. He's responding out of the fear of man. He's looking at the Philistines, and he's saying, that army is big and scary. And he is acting out of the fear of man rather than the fear of God. He is more afraid of the consequences of that army than he is the fear of the consequences of disobeying the living God. We can act out of this way. What does the fear of man look like? It's when we fear opposition. When we fear what people think of us rather than what God says of us. When we fear of offending others rather than offending God. We would rather disobey God than lose friendships or lose our position or lose a job. The fear of man is a dangerous thing. Saul shows that he is driven more by circumstances. That is what drives him and propels him. It's the circumstances rather than the word of God. Guys, the pressure of, t- of tough circumstances can cause you to doubt the wisdom and goodness of God, to dislike the boundaries that he sets for us, to grumble at the timing of his providence, right? Pressure and tough circumstances can cause us to do that. And I want you to, to consider this about yourself. Most of you would not outright disregard the commands of Christ just willy-nilly. Those of you who are believers in Christ, you love the Lord, like, no, if things are going good, I'm going to continue loving and obeying God. But crisis really reveals what's going on inside of us. And honestly, even in in the initial part of crisis, many of us, we do lean on faith, right? Oh, man, something happens, and yeah, and immediately we start asking for prayer. We start asking other people for prayer and say, okay, I'm going to trust God through this. And that's good. Praise God for that. But sometimes those hours turn to days, and days turn to weeks, and weeks turn to months, and sometimes even years. And does your faith endure as time goes on? I want you to hear this. Saul waited up to seven days, but he's not commended for waiting six days. He's condemned because he quit on the seventh. He's rebuked because he didn't wait seven days. If only Saul had the same thought, the same heart that David has. Look at this slide here, this passage from Psalm 37. It says, wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land and you will look on when the wicked are cut off. Saul's successor wrote that. If only he had the same heart. And so you need to ask yourself, Where do you feel pressure to give up on the Lord's ways? Where are you supposed to be waiting right now? And where do you feel pressure? And you're like thinking, you know what? I I want to take matters into my own hands. I want to do, you know. Will you wait in faithful patience? Where is God asking you to wait? Saul explains himself. (laughs) It's almost ironic, right? It says as soon as he's offering the offering, as soon as he's done doing that, then who shows up? Samuel. This seems to indicate that Samuel actually wasn't late. I think it, it seems to indicate that, that, um, that, that, uh, that, saw, that Samuel showed up on day seven. Maybe it's even at the end of the day. And if Samuel, sorry, if Saul, they both start with S. I keep getting mixed up. <laughs> if Saul had just waited like another hour, everything would have been different. <laughs> it should elicit the response like, oh, if you only wait a little longer. So Saul approaches Samuel, he, he goes out to meet him, he doesn't, and from, at least at this point, it doesn't seem like Saul is feeling any remorse or regret. He, he apparently feels justified because he goes right up to, to Samuel, he wants to bless him, he wants to speak with him. He doesn't like send somebody else and try to put him at bay, doesn't avoid him. At least at this point, it seems he's in his own mind justified. But what does Samuel say? What have you done? Oh, those are hard words to hear. Kids know this phrase when it's been uttered by their parents. What were you thinking? Right? Parents, you've probably said that recently at some point. Uh, me, and, me and Michelle were in the house, I don't know, was it two weeks ago, something like that, and Ben comes inside and he goes, Ellie's on the roof! <laughs> I'm like, what? And we go outside, and sure enough, I see a little stepladder, but not like a big one, like a little one, like three steps. I think my daughter put it up against the house and crawled those three steps and then scaled the brick the rest of the way onto the roof. 
And I sat there, and I look up at her, and she's sitting on the edge of the roof, and there's a leaf pile at the bottom. And I'm like, I see where you're going with this. But there's a part of me that I bring her down, and I'm like, what are you thinking? Right? In that instance, I kind of had to laugh, you know. I'm thankful that her courage gave up before she made the leap. But guys, even adults dread the sound of that when our, when our superiors say it. What are you thinking? What have you done? And when, when, when someone says that, you know, parents, when you've said that to your kid, you, you know that there's probably not a good explanation. Like, there's the condemnation rich in the words itself, right? Like, there is no justification you can say that would probably, that would justify what you've done here. Saul explains, hey, there was, and he lays out his case. There were three pressures. Hey, the army is starting to desert. The Philistines are mustered, and you didn't show up. He further explains that he feared the Philistines would come upon him, and he's like, and I haven't sought the Lord's favor yet. That's what I'm supposed to do, right? I haven't sought the Lord's favor, so I, I offered it, right? It's disobedience wrapped up in the appearance of devotion. Samuel didn't show up, so it's his fault. It's your fault. Even though he did show up, he's standing right there. And he says he needed to seek God's favor through offering sacrifices, and yet he offered those sacrifices when he did not have the authority to do so. Against God's God's general prescription in the book of Numbers, but also his specific instruction to wait for Samuel to do the offering. See, God doesn't want his people to worship and obey him as you see fit, but as he sees fit, how he's actually commanded. Listen to this verse. It's actually, look on the screen, 1 Samuel 15, 22. And this verse gets quoted multiple times in Scripture. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Saul, God did not want you to sacrifice. He wanted you to obey, to listen to him. He didn't want you to, to, um, to, to do, take your own disobedience up and wrap it up in this religious garb to make it appear like you're actually being devoted. Christians, we do this, sadly, often. Here's some things that I've heard, from, I've heard Christians say. I don't think God is calling me to date a Christian right now. Really? Somebody who is living and sleeping with someone outside of marriage. Well, I'm, I'm divorced now, so it's different. Really? My church growing up, a man said this. He was, he was high up in the church. I'm leaving my wife for this other woman in the church because she's more spiritual. I promise this next one's real. Yeah, I smoke pot. When I get high, my quiet times are better. Like in the word, my quiet times are better. How about this one? I can always repent later and God will forgive me. I've said that one myself. Have you? We have an amazing ability to baptize our unfaithfulness. Can anything, though, be more dishonorable to God? Right, to, to do something, to, to break his word, to disobey him to his face, and then try to baptize it and say, no, I'm actually doing what, you, what God calls me to do. And so, so uh, Saul goes on to say that I forced myself to do this, right? That I was compelled to offer these burnt offerings. I, I, I couldn't, I had to do it. As though Saul had no choice in the matter, and this is presumption. It's a great sin that we're going to see time and again in Saul's life. Hear this, circumstances may make obedience difficult. No, no, no doubt about it. There are times it is more difficult to obey God, Absolutely. Right? Where, where, where you're more likely to give into temptation. When you're hungry, when you're tired, when you're alone, when you're angry, no, no doubt about it. Right? There are times when it's easier for you to sin. There are times when circumstances may tempt us to sin, but circumstances don't justify your sin. You're never going to be able to stand before God and say, well, God, I know you don't like sin, but circumstances just, it just made me do it. We just can't say that before God. And that's what, what he's trying to do. 
And part of that is because do you, do you believe the work of Christ has done in your life? Because the, the New Testament says, the New Covenant says, your Savior says that you are no longer enslaved to sin. Maybe a long time ago you could have made that argument when you were enslaved, when you were under the domain of darkness. But now he has transferred you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And Paul says, I am a slave of Christ. And so as, as, as much as you were shackled to disobedience to your sin, you have been set free and now you are shackled to Christ and enslaved to him. In the best possible way we say that. Your second, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it's on the screen as well. Paul says this, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You know what's interesting? I remember, you know, oftentimes that has been used, at least in my experience, for things like sexual sin. But you know what the next verse is? Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. That's the context, actually, is idolatry. Guys, Samuel isn't fooled, but rather he points out that Saul has acted foolishly. He, he assumed that the, the, the temptation was too great. The circumstances merited, demanded that he disobey. He says, no, you, you missed it. You feared man and not God. You took things into your own hands. You should have waited for the Lord. And so Saul has acted foolishly. He's, foolishly. he's not obeyed the commands of the Lord as God. And Samuel pulls his punches. Sin is always foolish. It is not acting wisely. All of Saul's justifications fail to take into account the most important factor. But, but, but you didn't show up in time and I was waiting. But my, my army is deserting. But you know, I was scared. But everyone's leaving. But the armies are waiting right there. But, but, but. Okay, all of that's true. What does the Lord God say? So the punishment at this point in time was not that God rejects Saul as a man. He doesn't remove him as king, but he says, your kingdom is not going to continue. Saul will be the last and only one of his family to rule over Israel. And God, and, and, and God is going to choose for himself another king, somebody who is a man after his own heart, somebody who will obey him, somebody who in the face of these things will say, no, I'm going I'm to wait. I'm going to do what the Lord God has told me to do. The same one who, who wrote that psalm that I read earlier, wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land, and you will look on when the wicked are cut off. That's a man after God's own heart. So the punishment is that he is going to lose the kingdom for now. I know eventually Saul's actions, because he will continue this pattern, uh, will lead to a full-on rejection of him as king. But as for this act, the punishment is that his kingly lineage will end with him. And I know some of you uh, read this story this week, or even as you're hearing this, you're kind of like, does that seem kind of harsh? Does the consequence seem harsh? I mean, he, wh what was the order that he failed to obey? Right? He just didn't wait long enough. He didn't wait seven days. Is that really, is that really a big deal? I mean, it seems like such a small transgression. After all, let's think about, Saul didn't like oh, do human sacrifice, right? He didn't like start sacrificing to the Baals. He didn't try to kill Samuel when he showed up in anger. He didn't surrender to the Philistines. You're like, he just didn't wait long enough. Is that such a big deal? And from a human perspective, yeah, maybe it's not a big deal. But consider it from the other side. God was putting Saul to the test. And the test, hear this, you might say, yeah, it wasn't a big deal. Yeah, maybe that's why it is a big deal, because it wasn't that hard. The test that God put him to is actually pretty easy to keep. Just wait. That's all, Saul. I'm not asking you to do anything like incredibly difficult, right? Just wait. Saul, if you would have just kept your eyes off the Philistines and put your eyes on me, this wouldn't have been that hard. But instead, Saul is sitting there for one day, two day, three day, four day, five, six day, and he's just staring at the Philistines, and he's looking at his ill-equipped soldiers who are departing, and he's looking at them trembling, and it's like, if you have just looked at the living God, waited on him, this pretty easy test in terms of its simplicity maybe would have gone different. And the test, because it's easy, he failed, it's like, well, if you're going to fail at such a simple task, 
Can you be entrusted with really, when I ask you to do hard things? Saul, he would not obey in this task. He's not going to be trusted to obey God in greater matters. And this is reminiscent, honestly, of the garden. Consider the Garden of Eden. God gave Adam and Eve so many good trees, good plants, good fruit, and only one thing was withheld. That tree right there. Don't eat from that tree. Like, when you actually think about it, it's not that hard, right? Just don't do that one thing. Enjoy everything else I've given you. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion, but don't eat from that tree. And it's a test, and obedience really is quite, quite simple. Just don't eat the fruit of that tree. It's clearly identified, clearly communicated, and so the trespass doesn't seem small at first, but it is great. And maybe, because the, maybe, maybe it's, it's even worse because obedience should have been so simple. Guys, sometimes God calls us to do things that, that feel to us harder than they actually are. Just wait. Just pray. Just wait for me to show up. Don't fix your eyes on the enemies that are bearing down on you. Don't fix your eyes on, on the pressures. Don't, don't, you know, because then, yes, it's going to feel difficult. It's going to feel overwhelming. It's going to feel insurmountable, and you're going to tremble, and you're going to want to start taking things in your own hands. And you may even start seeking other idols. You may, you may give up in faith. If you would just keep your eyes on Christ, he's coming soon. And so Saul is rejected because he doesn't do that. In fact, Saul actually represents Israel's religious life, right? He's outwardly religious, but inwardly he's wayward. He was impatient. He feared man more than God. He failed to obtain the promises because he failed to obey the commands. He was a king after Israel's own heart. God says, I need a king after my own heart. Eventually, or initially, this is going to be fulfilled when soon he's going to anoint David to be king. David is a mighty man of faith. A man who loves the Lord. And yet even he is a king who's imperfect, who has his great flaws. And every one of David's sons, even though God covenants with him, you're going to have a throne forever. Every single one of David's sons fails at some point. Some are righteous, many are not. All of them fail. Well, except one. Ultimately, it's that one who fulfills God's call here. It's fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David. He is the king who perfectly obeys the Father, who looks all around him and looks at all the temptations, who the devil himself tempts him after he's been starving in the desert for 40 days, and the devil tempts him with all the shortcuts. You can have the kingdom. All the kingdoms of the world, I'll give them to you. Just bow down before me. Jesus is hard-pressed. Jesus is in a bad place, he's hungry, he's tired, he's alone, and he says, no. I will obey, I will keep my eyes on my Father. And because of that, he is worthy to rule over all things. John six thirty eight. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You're like, but you're, but you're God in the flesh. Why do you have to obey the Father? Because he's fulfilling this. I am the king that is obedient, that keeps my eyes on the Father and does his will. Therefore, he is fit to rule his people well and have victory over every battle. And so are you feeling hard-pressed? Are you feeling like Saul in areas of your life, other things where you are hard-pressed that are difficult or seemingly insurmountable? Has it been going on for a long time now? You're like, okay, God, I'm, I'm really waiting for you to like, show up. I'm waiting. I've had faith for a while, but it's getting harder to continue having faith. I, I actually, I, I know I've been speaking firmly, but I, I do not want to minimize. I know how hard that is. If I did that in my own life, like it, it does get hard, and it feels like, God, where are you? Does it seem like God has deserted you or hasn't answered your prayers? Saul is a warning for all of us today. Don't shortcut. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't be found in a situation where it's like, oh, if you had just waited one more hour. If you had just trusted God a little longer, don't be tempted to take matters in your own hands and justify your sin. Look to Christ. I'd like to finish this, this, uh, this time reading to you a very precious passage um, from the book of Lamentations, this, a book that is entirely about mourning after the fall of Jerusalem. And right in the middle of the book, he writes this. 
Remember my affliction and my wanderings. My, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord God, I I, I pray for those who are here who are hard-pressed. God, who are dealing with sickness, brokenness, with circumstances that are out of control, that seem insurmountable, that are painful. God, for which there seems to be no earthly solution, where it seems like, just don't know how it's going to turn out. God, and we're all there in different ways, whether it's relationships or finances or health or anything else. God, I pray today that you would give your people strength to wait on you. God, that you would give them sweet mercies today and tomorrow. That you would give them sleep at night. Lord, that you would give them energy for the day. That you would remind them, Lord, that that they are not like Saul, Lord, but they have your Holy Spirit dwelling within them. Remind them of your mercy and grace. Lord, they have a Savior and a high priest who intercedes for them. Lord, who will ride on the clouds and come back for them. God, who is, who is you, they have a Savior who cares deeply for them, who cares even for this. Lord, give them, a, uh, we know and we trust, Lord, for those who are here, that you will give them uh, a way of escape when temptation seems strong. Strengthen your people, God, and glorify yourself greatly even in these trials. We trust you, we look to you. In Christ's name I pray.